Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Minisports. Anything and everything for the classic Mini since 1967. Andy Jones owns a variety of interesting cars, a really eclectic collection. Most people use that word without knowing what it means. It means all kinds of different things, and that's what Andy does have. Although when I think about it, I think they're all British. Although he's owned all sorts of stuff, he's a really interesting guy, a nice guy. I talk too much as usual, but hopefully you'll find it interesting. It's all over the place this week. Uh, But again, I think you'll enjoy it. I know you'll enjoy it. My guest this week, Andy Jones. Andy, you're in Ross-on-Sea. Yes. Near Llandidno. Do you do... You're not a Welshman, are you, obviously? I'm from... I was born in Coventry. I was going to say... You sound like you're more from the heartland of the British car industry. We say the British car industry, we really mean the English car industry, don't we? If we're honest. Yeah, I mean, I think, what was it, Gilburn in Wales? Gilburn, good one. tiny, really, wasn't it? What about Scotland, the Hillman Imp? Yeah, oh, yes, at Linwood, wasn't it? Do you know what that is now? Linwood, it's a a shopping centre, a very nice shopping centre. But I got there and I thought... Oh, and it's sad that it's a shopping centre. And then I went in the shopping centre and thought, it's actually a nice shopping centre. And then I thought about men that I know. Because I think there's a, a lot of car journalists are middle class. Right, we're off on a tangent already, but um, never mind. A lot of car journalists are middle class. Don't think that I have got anything against middle class people. My mother's family were solid, respectable, middle class business people. Accountants... Um, stockbrokers, business owners, etc. My dad's family were farmers. They were kind of classless. I don't think farmers have a class. No. Um, but I've got nothing against middle-class people, but a lot of motoring journalists are sort of Matt and Tom. There's a lot of Matts and a lot of Toms, and they come from places with lots of names, like where you live, like Princess Risborough and Bishop Stortford. And I grew up with people who came from Berry, Wigan... Rochdale, you know, nowhere's got two names. <laughs> Apart from Ashton under the line, that's it, right? So they've got this weird idea about what it's like to work in a factory. They think working in a car factory would be fantastic, and it wouldn't. It might no. be nice to work at Morgan or or Pagani, both of which I've been to, because you're doing craft. But most people, Andy, that work in a factory are just doing a repetitive task every single day of their life, aren't they? The same thing. Exactly. As started by Henry Ford, of course. Well, have you read Robert Lacey's book about Henry Ford? It's no, a proper doorstopper. You need you need to, I mean like eight hundred and seventy pages. It's very good. He write it's written very much like um Do you remember Harold Robbins? Sorry, I'm asking oh, you a yeah, lot of I've questions. Heard, I'll tell you why I heard that name on Forty Towers one episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The sort of book you'd take on holiday of Harold Robbins, wasn't it? The, I remember my dad on holiday reading The Carpet Baggers. And I, I was a very keen reader, still am. Quite unusual these days, but still am. 
And I said to my dad, uh, can I read that, Dad? And he went, no. Because <laughs> I just thought, oh, it's just a book. But my dad was reading it, and he just looked up and went, no. <laughs> but um, Robert Lacey's book is written very much in that kind of epic, ro- epic sort of romance style. You know, like Sons and Daughters or something like that, where it's all, it's all there's this massive cast of people. At times you're thinking, who's this guy? But it's very engaging. And there are various theories that are explored about where Henry Ford got the idea of the production line from. I think the most convincing is the Springfield rifle from the Springfield Rifle Manufacturing Company, rather obviously clue in the name, you know, of Massachusetts, who made, I think, around the time of the American Civil War, there was obviously an enormous demand for rifles, and they had to change the way that they'd been traditionally made by a craftsman. They had to say, no, no, we need to speed this up. You're good at that job, you do that job all day. You're good at that job, you do that job all day. A sad day, really, wasn't it, I suppose? I'm just, I'm just thinking about that. I suppose the, the, the same gun manufacturers sold guns to both sides. Well, you know Maxim? Have you heard that name? Yes. Hiram Maxim. In the Edwardian era, he travelled the world selling his Maxim gun to everybody. The French, the Germans, the British, the Americans. And so in World War One, the guns that were mowing down the flower of that generation were all made by the same person, most of them. As, as, as far as when you think about it. Well, it? well you know. I, I, I'll shut up in a second, but I think this is quite interesting. I went to... Do you know the Ace Cafe, Andy, in London, that place? Do you know it? Oh, I've heard of it. I've never been, but I've heard of oh, it. Oh, you must go. It's a great place. Met my missus there. Oh, we're, great. Well, we, well, yeah, we were both married to other people at the time, and it, there was a reasonable amount of unpleasantness, but we've been together for 15 years. Ha-ha, people who said it never last 15 well, years. <laughs> so we must be doing something right. But I went there a few weeks back, and um, the event was rained off, and I was like, yeah, right, okay. And because um, it was, I mean, and I mean, it really was terrible weather. And my pal who I was with Ian said to me, Have you ever been to the RAF Museum at Hendon, which is just up the road from here, Stonebridge Park? I went, No. He said, Shall we go? I went, Is it inside? He said, Yes. <laughs> so we went, and there was a, I've better be careful here because I'm going to ask you if you remember something else. Do you remember Stan Boardman on the Des O'Connor show? Oh, yes, with a well, certain uh, German plane. Well, it's not German. Well, it it is and it isn't. The Fokker, the F-O-K-K-E-R, the Fokker, which is a German... Although, Stan (laughs) Every British person remembers that, don't they? It was so funny. It was so funny, but it was so outrageous because dropping the F-bomb, I think Kenneth Tynan was the first person to do it back in on some very serious arts programme, the theatre critic, Kenneth Kenneth Tynan. I think he was talking about look back in anger. Which, which is, you know, 60 years ago. But it was a rare occurrence on British... A very rare occurrence on British television at the time. It, he, it was. It he was, just yeah. kept saying yeah. it. He was talking about the war, of course, and he was going, so these... F-, and he was his pronunciation was terrible, deliberately, of course. Yeah, yeah. But it kind of ended his TV career. It, it nearly ended Des O'Connor's TV career. It, but, I mean, when you look back on it and, and his final punchline, it, it was brilliant, really. <laughs> It was brilliant, but it was like it was like watching somebody commit career suicide very slowly. Yeah. It, you think he can't say it again, 
And Des right. doesn't know what to do. And it was live. So what are you going to do? Anyway, I didn't realise until I read the plaque next to a, a Fokker, I think a Fokker Wolf, um, that he was a Dutchman. Get this. He was a Dutchman. Right. If this is wrong, feel free to correct me. Steve Speedshop Facebook page, however you want to get in touch with me. As far as I'm aware, he was a Dutchman who was in Germany trying to sell the Germans planes when war broke out. And he went, right, I'm off back to Amsterdam. They went, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a minute. No, mate. You're staying here. It, it sounds right. I mean, And it, they forced him to stay in Germany and make planes. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he wasn't the only person who ended up um, uh, in Ger- you know, in Germany making things that he perhaps didn't necessarily want to do. Um, but that is my... Bl- I-, I always thought he was a, a German, but no, he was a Dutchman. Because there was the, the, um, the triplanes of Baron von Richthofen in the First War, which they were, they were Fokker triplanes. Have you seen the Blue Max, Andy? That film with George Peppard? Ages ago. I watched it again recently. What a fantastic film. They'll never be able to make a film like that again because they they did it all for real. There was, there was no CGI, obviously. I think, when would the Blue Max be? George Peppard must have been late 20s, early 30s. He was in his 60s, 80s, 80s. It must have been 60s, uh, mid-60s, because in colour. Although colour film's been around since forever. Yeah. Weirdly, they kept on with black and white for a long time after colour had been invented. They kept on with black and white. But anyway, I watched it again recently, and the the aerial fight sequences are stunning. Yes. When you think how, how short the period was from the invention of flight to the First World War, how the hell did planes get so good so quickly? It was astonishing. Well, I mean, in many ways, war accelerates development in everything, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but you're not allowed to. Uh, you're not allowed to mention that. <laughs> you're not allowed to mention. Well, you can on this show because it's true. I'm not advocating war, but it is definitely the case that uh, development of everything rockets. You know, when 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 you're at war, you think, how can we get it better than they've got it, and so on. We were know. talking about that. Um, Again, I'm saying, do you remember? I'm going to ask you something else. Sorry to quiz you, interrogate you like this. It's like the war, this, isn't it, Andy? You've been interrogated. <laughs> Tell me your secrets, Mr. Jones. <laughs> or oh, it'll be all the fuss for you. No, um, that green form that you used to get. I've recently spent five weeks in, in Canada. Uh, I went to see my missus, who's mentioned every single week on this show. I haven't seen her for nearly two years. How about that? I haven't seen it for nearly two years. When I got there, I said, it's like one of us has been in jail, and she immediately said, well, that would have been you. And yeah. she's she's right, it would have been me. <laughs> so, um, don't know what for, but... No, maybe, shouldn't mention that. Right, so, um, that green form, there used to be a question on there, do you remember? And it said, are you now... Or have you been at any time a member of... Do you remember this? A member of the National Socialist Party in Germany between 1933 and 1945. That used to be a question on that green form when you went into the, into the States. And you How had to take... How you have to be to, 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 have been, to have managed that? Mate, that's a few years ago. That question still used to be on that green form that they'd say, oh, you got to... F- now you do it online, but they used to say, oh, fill in this... Uh, thing and give it in when you're handing your passport you'd hand in the green form and I said I wonder what Werner von Braun put when 
when he was when he was flying to the states, as Hitler was poisoning his dog and, and you know and burning all his papers. And because he went on with the, the um, moon rockets and all that, wasn't it? Yeah, but it must have been an awkward moment when he thought. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I will tick. I will tick. Um, not given to people who are useful. Yeah, I will tick the nine box. Or, or on the flight they went. Yeah, don't give it to Verna. Bit awkward. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not. No. <laughs> Should we talk? No. But the reason I was going to mention it, the, the, there's a great scene as well in the Blue Max. And I'm going to bring it round to cars. We are. Oh, we're only twelve minutes in. Not too bad, for me. But. Um, there's a scene in that film where the Red Baron, because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, um, the character... No, the character, the Red Baron was an aristocrat, of course. He was the Red Baron, Baron von Richthofen. He was a Prussian aristocrat and, uh, you know, and high-born and sort of dueling scars, monocles, all that carry on. The yeah. character of the of who wins the coveted Blue Max, George Peppard's character, he's up from the ranks. He's, you know, he's a, he's a working-class tough who sort of elbows his way to the, into a plane which back then was the equivalent of being a sort of cavalry officer and was reserved mainly for aristocrats. But the, the Red Baron comes to visit them to give them a pep talk, and uh, there are all these new pilots, because the Germans weren't doing too well. It was towards the end of the war. And he said, uh, he said good luck with those new Sotwiths. And um, one of them says, oh, yes, those Sotwiths. Those Sotwiths come so fast out of the sun by the time you've seen them, you're already dead, or something like that. And I thought, yeah, because of W.O. Bentley's engine. <laughs> like that. When you're a car person, if you're watching a film, or bi- more bikes are worse, you're watching a film, if there's an interesting car, you can't help yourself, can you? You're in the oh, cinema going, oh, look at that, Studebaker of Ante. Do you know that they were, de- <laughs> like the missus is elbowing you in the ribs because it's a love scene and the car's just in the background. I mean, when I'm when I see old cars on 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 TV programs, and f- I, I'm often googling them, see see if it's the right number and is, is it is it the right period and does it still exist and this sort of stuff. I can't help doing it. Have you been on that internet movie database for cars? There, there is IMDb, obviously, for people who are. My missus is, has got the professional version that you have to subscribe to so she can stalk her former colleagues and see how well or badly they're doing. But there's, there's one for cars, and it's fantastic. It'll tell you how far into the film the car appears. Because remember watching Bullet for the first time, the oh, Steve yes. McQueen movie? Yes. Well, well, the car chase doesn't happen for well over an hour. <laughs> well, you're at least an hour in before the car chase, aren't you? Well, exactly. Uh, you have to wait for it, don't you? But uh, it's actually you get to it. It's actually a very good film, isn't it? You know, like some of the some of the films that are, are great car films are very good films. Do you know what I mean, Andy? They're not they're not good dramas, or they you know. But there's some good car content, but the rest of it's absolute garbage. But Bullet is actually Robert Vaughn's very good in Bullet, isn't he? The man from Uncle. Yeah. Oh yes. Yes. He's appropriately sleazy. You could you could believe him being a sort of two-faced politician. I, I, I mean, the other week we watched um, Smoking the Bandit. Oh. One. <laughs> That's a terrible film. <laughs> I'm talking, that's shocking. But, well, I tell you the worst one, and that's the second one. And I think, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> you know, I mean, there isn't really a story to it. I'll tell you what's, what's a... A, a good film with cars in it 
Um, well, all films have got cars in it. Um, the Blues Brothers. Oh, that is, yes. It's oh, actually that a... Ago. That was good when they go through the supermarket and that, isn't it? It's actually a good film. It's funny. The yeah. music is fantastic. Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, James Brown. It's an awesome um, film for the music. And the stuff that they do with cars is just... Like they've said, it'll never happen again because it costs so much money. <laughs> it costs so much money to smash up so many cars and do it over and over and over again. It was hundreds of cars that got wrecked, wasn't it? It wasn't... Well, it was astonishing how they, how they get the budget for this, really. But the lot of what? it, you think, do they have to do that? And Well, if you think of Dukes of Hazard, which I used to watch, the, the series, I never watched the film, but the series, you no. get through so many Dodge Chargers. Right, Andy, we've got to talk about this now. Did you see recently on social media those photographs, and that's all I'm going to say at the moment, of the Dukes of Hazard? No. Right, well... Are you sitting down? Yes. Hold on to your desk or your table. Yeah. There were a lot of photographs of them doing, filming some of the stunts on Dukes of Hazard back in the day with model cars. They were little they they? radio-controlled cars jumping the creek and all that carry on. And they still manage oh, to make the yeah. real ones. I saw them, and underneath the comments from... You know, I didn't look who they were, but you could t- you could tell they were middle-aged men from the names because nobody's called Colin or Derek anymore unless they're over 50, are they? <laughs> you know what I mean? You can yeah. tell. If somebody says to you, oh, a bloke called Colin rang, you go, well, yeah, I, I know that's not going to be a young person because or Nigel. You know that nobody's been called those names for, for decades, so you know how old the person's going to be. And underneath these photographs of them, as I say, doing the stunts with General Lee, and you could tell they were real because you can't fake that 70s hair, can you? When no. they make a movie and they try and put a 70s hair wig on somebody, you think, well, that doesn't look right because people's hair was in terrible condition. Do you remember when people used to have hair that was like straw? It was so dry and thick well, and all that kind of thing. Like me, I used to have long, long hair and, oh, God, in the 70s. It's horrible when you look back at a picture of it. You think, what the hell was going on there? Yeah, I, I, my dad was lucky and I was lucky. My dad got married in the 60s, and so he looks cool. He looks like he's in Reservoir Dogs, my father. Yeah. He, looks like, he looks like he's one of them lot. He's got a black suit. A white shirt, thin black tie. He's got short black hair, slicked down and like, you know, black. He, he looks cool. And then I was in the 90s, the mid-90s. So there was we were having a bit of a 60s revival then. So I've got this Paul Smith suit, slim fitting, slim lapels, nice. You know, nothing, nothing too ridiculous. Those poor people that got married in the 70s in a brown suit or an orange suit. <laughs> Something like that. They've got to hide the photographs. Oh, can we see you wedding pictures? No. Like my dad with the carpet baggers. No, you can't see the wedding pictures. They could get them edited to a different colour now, wouldn't they, with Photoshop or something? Well, they used to do that back in the day. My father showed me a picture the other day of me and my siblings when I was about... I'm the eldest. I must have been about ten. And do you remember this? I keep saying, do you remember? It's like blinking Nostalgia Incorporated this week. But anyway, it's just how it is. We're old. We've done a lot of stuff. Most of the interesting stuff happened years ago. And when they used to colour photographs, this picture of me and my brothers and sisters was was coloured afterwards, hand-coloured. Oh, they did? 
He'd given us rosy cheeks and, like, r- ruby lips and all that business. And what the heck was all that about? You, you see a lot of photographic old postcards that are all hand-tinted and that, and, and way beyond realism. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We look like pantomime dames, me and my brother, except we were ten at nine and ten at the time. <laughs> it's like when we uh, my dad first bought a colour television, which was late 60s. And to my utter amazement, because he couldn't stand any kind of pop music or anything like that, he his, he said, you've got to watch Top Gear, uh, not, sorry, not Top Gear, uh, Top of the Pops, because the colours are fantastic, he was going. I thought, I can't believe I'm hearing this. Wow. And it was all the colours turned up to maximum because it was colour, and he, he refused to watch anything black and white. He said, <laughs> For a colour set and watching black and white, you go. It was, it was, I remember it to this day. We, we, had, we, had, we had the Ferguson video recorder with the lead on it. Right, well, oh, hold on a second. Here we go. So, me and my brother mentioned this before. I've, we used to call Dad Inspector Gadget because he, he sounds like your father. What was your father's name, Andy? Was he a Colin or a Derek? Jim. Jim. Oh, people still call Jim. Oh, but, well, James um, Henry, actually. But, well, again, uh, but both very fashionable names these days, so very sort of uh, ahead of his time in some ways. But, yeah. uh, and like I say, we called Dad Inspector Gadget. We were the first people to have a colour tally for the 1970 World Cup. We had, as you've just said, a Ferguson video star with a lead to the yeah. the so-called remote control and piano key, keys that were mechanical. You had to exert pressure. It wasn't a solenoid. You weren't just making an electrical connection. It you was had... enormous as well. Clang! Well, it wasn't that enormous because... Although Dad was Inspector Gadget, and he had one. Of, my, dad, my dad had one of those mobile phones that was one of those military phones, the ones that they kind of, instead of being green, they painted them black. But you yeah. had to, you had to have a separate battery pack in a shoulder like thing, and, yeah. a, and an aerial, <laughs> like a giant aerial. And my dad stood there in the street going, "Yes, I will talk to you on my office telephone when I get back, because right now I'm talking to you on my mobile telephone." <laughs> you know, like this. There was no real reason, but he, again, like your dad, he was like, "Well, I could have phoned," and, and he'd be stood outside our house doing that, and I think the phone is thirty that, that, seconds away. But reminded he, me of that Trigger Happy TV with um, with Dom yeah. Jolly. Yeah, yeah, with his giant mobile phone. <laughs> He wrote, a, he wrote a book. I was, I was at an airport, and um, the only book I could find in this tiny little kiosk was one of his books. Oh, yeah. And the book was about going around the world to find legendary monsters. So we've got... I've just been up at Loch Ness, but we've got the Loch Ness monster, which obviously doesn't exist, and he... Well, none of them exist, do they? The one that always, I think, is strangest is the Abominable Snowman, because they go... Oh, the Sasquatch, there's a giant creature living in the forest. Yeah, there are giant creatures living in the forest. They're called bears. And some, some of them weigh 800 pounds and would tear your head off and suck your brains out as soon as look at you. So we've created a smaller, less scary, artificial monster and gone, oh, the abominable snowman, oh, the Sasquatch. And you're like, well, it's not as scary as a bear. Bears actually exist, and they have giant claws and massive teeth and will kill you if you get in their way. Oh. Some people want bears and wolves back here. Uh, yeah, well, 
I was just up in the far north of Scotland with my pal Rupert on a on a recce for a film that were, that, that northwest as well. I've been to the northeast before, but I've not been to the northwest. Dunress, Ullapool, Cape Wrath, all around there. That is yeah. some of the most impressive scenery, and just in the world, in the world. I've, I've I've been all over the place, and I can only think of a couple of other places that just had my head swivelling. The way that the northwest, the northwest tip of Scotland, did. It is beautiful. It's a long time since I've been, but it was me and a friend used to go up in a try and Vitesse convertible quite regularly. My, fa- my grandfather had a what had a Vitesse convertible, old English white with red leather. What colour was yours? I've had I, I've had white, uh, I've had blue, I've had no end of them. Um, did you like the Vitesse? I thought it was a great car. Because of course, Herald derived, but how much of it was Herald? And how much of it... Because the style, the Michelotti styling... Was it Michelotti who did the Vitesse as well? Yes, it was, yes. Because that was a handsome car. Beautiful thing. And a oh. distinctive-looking car. My grandfather, he had, he had when he had the Vitesse, he had a Mark II Jag. BR, oh. BRG, obviously, black leather. And he had, he had the Vitesse. And there was also a Triumph 2004. 500 PI, petrol injection. How radical, eh, Andy? PI, petrol injection, wow. They were fantastic. I had one, but when I come to sell it, everyone's terrified of the petrol injection. Was it mechanical fuel injection on those? Yeah, yeah, it was... It was. Ooh. I'll tell you what, it, mine, I had a problem. Um, it overheated the pump in the back. Basically, it was a, a wiper motor that powered the pump, and it overheated. And I was in the middle of the night in the countryside somewhere, and I thought... So, how am I going to cool this down? And I, I found a carrier bag. I was stopped near a canal. So, in the pitch black, I'm going down this embankment with a carrier bag, fill it up with water, go back up again, threw it over the pump, and it got me home. I thought that story was going to end up with you having to loosen the belt on your trousers. Because, <laughs> well, we all, we've, we all know people that have done that. I can't say I've ever had to do that myself, but... My kids, here's the thing about old cars, old motorbikes, old machines, planes, cars, trains, bicycles, old objects create memories. Oh, they do. And my son was telling me the other day, he said, do you remember when we went to, because we were having a drink. And I said, what do you want? And he said, uh, oh, uh, such and such. And, and somebody was having black currant cider. You know, like they buy cider, though, the kids with, like, stro- the kids, the kids. I mean, anybody under 35, they buy cider with, like, and it's already peach-flavoured or strawberry-flavoured. I think Recorderling is... I've never drunk it because it looks like... Nor have I. It's not my thing. I'm, uh. I drink Guinness and I drink stout in, or bitter in the winter. I'm a northerner. I drink stout or bitter in the winter. And the day that the first day of summer is when I switch to Pilsner, German or Czech. I won't, yeah. I won't have any rubbish. That's the first day of summer when I switch from bitter to lager. But my son was saying, "Hey, Dad, you remember when we went to Blackpool?" And I thought, I know what he's going to say because the kid, the other guy, I don't kid. I'm getting really old. I'm calling thirty-five-year-old men kids. The guy was ordering blackcurrant flavored cider, and I knew exactly what my son was going to say. We were going to Blackpool along the motorway. Me, the ex-wife, three kids in the back of an Alfa Romeo GTV6. Now, you're thinking, how did you get three kids in the back? Well, they were little, and seatbelt laws were... I think two of them were wearing one seatbelt. Anyway, 
It overheated in the queue. There was always a queue into Blackpool on that motorway. I don't know why I went the motorway way. So I pulled over and I thought, what can I do? And I realised we had a picnic in the back and we had a massive bottle, a massive bottle of blackcurrant, Ribena. So I thought, I'll use that. <laughs> so, so I let it cool down and it, it, spewed its, it spewed its guts all over the place. I let it cool down. And then I put, I replaced the, the liquid that the radiator had ejected at some pressure with Ribena, a massive glug of Ribena. And we drove into Blackpool. It worked as well. We drove into Blackpool with this really intense smell of blackcurrant, which was actually very pleasant. It was quite, it was quite nice. And that's got to be 15 years ago. My yeah. son remembered straight away. I mean, you've reminded me, we, I worked at a place once, and at Christmas they gave you a bottle of whiskey, but it was some, I mean, I'm not a whiskey fan, but it was some really cheap, horrible stuff, and I thought, what am I going to do with this? And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll stick it in the windscreen washer bottle to stop it freezing. <laughs> You're making that up, Andy. Absolutely true. You put whiskey. Right, it, I can see a problem, mate. I well, can see... Watch the windows. Yeah, so I can see a problem. I can see Andy Jones at the side of the road. You were in Coventry at the time. This is when you were there, is it? Oxfordshire, actually. Oxfordshire. And, you know, a traffic cop saying, this your car, sir? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Been drinking, have we? Because of the really pervasive smell of whiskey about your motor car. Never happened though, but but it's absolutely true. I did do that. <laughs> and did it work? Of course it worked. It's alcohol. It's strong alcohol, so it would have worked, wouldn't it? Well, I thought I couldn't see of another use for it. I mean, you wouldn't only give it to somebody you didn't like. <laughs> I wouldn't give it to a whiskey drinker. They'd be offended. So, <laughs> can we come back to the Triumph test for for, yeah, go for, for it. just because I I I really like them, and I I don't think I want to own one because. I think it's kind of don't meet your heroes because as a boy, uh, my grandfather, John Moore, who was a senior traffic cop, um, amongst his other things that he did, played, he did all sorts of stuff, flew planes, played football at a fairly high level, had a few fights, pro fights as a boxer, till he got knocked spark out in his his third fight. (laughs) In his third fight, uh, in his hometown in the third round by an American. They brought him. I don't know why he was fighting. Like his third fight. We, my mother's got the program somewhere from the, you know, from the the evening. He's there, John Moore, and um, he used to get me. He'd go. He'd say, "Stephen, go and warm the oil in the Jaguar or the the Triumph or whatever," and I'd go out to his big garage at the back of his house and roll back the beautiful wooden doors which were on a rail that went back into the garage it was like a four-car garage wonderful and even as a boy of like eight or nine they were so well made and well designed that these giant wooden doors i could easily roll them back well not easily but i could roll them back at like nine ten years old and then i was trusted to get into these manual car manual gearbox cars and at like nine years old and start them up and you know and then when, when the oil got up to operating temperature, or the, the temperature got up, um, I'd go and tell him, I'd say, right, the car's ready to drive now, Grandad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he wouldn't have dreamed of just setting off in any of his cars. 
Oh, that's fantastic, isn't it? You would have got a cuff round the ear. I'll tell you his other thing as well. And uh, I haven't met too many people like this. He would not have a radio of any kind in any of his cars. Oh, right. Because he said he'd been to so many fatal accidents where somebody had been fiddling with the radio (laughs) or changing a cassette. He said they once... Well, he didn't go into detail. He wasn't that kind of bloke. But he said someone had been someone had a cassette tape in their hand, yeah, at the time, and there was another one on the floor, and they were stone dead, and it, and it was like, but you, I mean, back then, a thirty or forty mile an hour crash could quite easily kill you, couldn't it? Oh yes, in those cars. Um, I mean, it makes me wonder how on earth people cope with all, with basically like an iPad stuck on the dashboard of a modern car. I've not had one with it yet, because I don't go that modern. Well, I, a, a pal gave me a lift in his Tesla, and, and as you said, there's a giant iPad in the middle, and you think, that's pretty distracting. But, but they all seem to do it now, don't they? Yeah, but, well, vans are the same. Have you noticed van drivers seem to have, again, um, a giant iPad or tablet, whatever you want to call it? It's pretty distracting, but... Here in Manchester, and I'm sure in every city in the United Kingdom, I've not really noticed it anywhere too much anywhere else because my travelling's mainly been done in... I've been in Canada for five weeks and then I was up in the north of, northwest of Scotland. Manchester is full of incredibly bright LED advertising, giant advertising boards, which are insanely distracting. So here's the thing. Some of them show video footage. If you're driving down the Regent Road to head out of the city towards Liverpool, for whatever reason... <laughs> for some reason, you want to go to Liverpool, I don't know why you would. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> a fine city, a great city, Liverpool, great city. And um, if you're going out along the Regent Road, there's a giant board that shows rugby highlights. And I'm thinking, uh, is that should they be doing that on this fast road? Out of this? Should they be showing... It's oh. distracting as hell, isn't it? It's unbelievable, actually, that that's allowed, isn't it? When they go on about mobile phones, quite rightly, don't make the text and all that stuff. But they, you know, you think, can I touch it when, it, when it's me sat nav? You know, on the socket, on the screen. You do, you're paranoid now. Technology law never the law never keeps pace with technology, does it, Andy? No, and you think, well, you know, these modern cars—they're all this touchscreen stuff. What are you doing, like sixty miles an hour or something? How can you precisely touch something? It's not like the old radios where there's a knob for the volume and a knob for the tuning. Um, Ah, back in the old days, you could touch your knob when you were driving. (laughs) And if the police pulled you over and said, there's a very strong smell of whiskey here, Mr. George, you could say, oh, it's in the washer bottle, mate. I suppose they would have been been able to check. Well, do you not remember in in the old sort of noirish movies where sort of... You know, everybody smoked and, and was very smartly dressed all the time. When they murdered somebody, what they'd usually do is put, get them drunk, tie them to a chair, pour whiskey down the throat, then put them in... Do you remember how many cars? Put them in the car, put a brick on the on the throttle and send yep. them over a cliff. And then when they were found stinking of whiskey, they'd just, oh, well, he was just, you know, he got tanked up and he just lost it on that corner. They always They were always bumping people off like that, weren't they? Well, some of them are, uh, you know, you think, well, they'd spot the brick, and you think, I'm sure that shouldn't be there. Do you you remember the time when they, you're probably not old enough, but they had all the energy crisis in the 70s, and there was was, one of the ideas was put a brick 
behind the throttle pedal so you can't press it too. <laughs> so it's still, you know, that was well, true. I know. Well, even more ridiculous things happened. We, we were talking about motorcycle licensing the other day. Ooh, what a thrilling conversation. How excited, Steve. Do tell us more, people are thinking. No. Um, I'll tell you a little bit. And we were discussing, with someone younger than us, we were saying, do you remember when they used to do a kit so you could blank off one cylinder on your motorbike and make it legal for a learner? And the guy said, what? I said, yeah, yeah, if you had a 400, when the, when the 250 law came in, in the motorcycling press, there'd be an advert saying, make your 400 legal with this simple blanking kit, blank off one cylinder, and all, you know, it was like, what? That's no, not, that's yeah. not going to work. That's well, that, I mean, that's as mad as when the, uh, when the little bubble cars and, that, and the Reliance come out and reverse had to be blanked off if you only had a mo- motorcycle licence. I mean, it's quite ludicrous, really, when you think about it. Well, it's like we're saying, um, licensing and the law never keeps up with technology. So... I lived in, uh, until recently, in a building in the centre of Manchester, uh, which had got quite a notorious history to do with um, the sort of Manchester's established criminal fraternity. Right. Uh, I won't go into, into further detail, but there are all sorts of stories around this building, including um, the fact that Thin Lizzy, Phil Lynott, Thin Lizzy wrote a song a hit song about the bloke who owned the building. Oh, yeah. Called Johnny the Fox. Yeah. And George Best used to use it as a secret... uh, I was going to say shag pad, but I don't think I can say that on the radio. So I'll say um, meeting place where he would entertain young ladies because his boutique, he ran a fashion boutique called Victoriana with his friend Mike Summerby, who played for Manchester City. Yeah. Back in the days when Manchester City and Manchester United actually employed British football players who were, you know, who lived in the area. And some of them even stayed round here when they stopped playing for the teams instead of legging it back to the other side of the world as fast as they could. They had a boutique on Bridge Street and just down from there was this building. And like I say, it was it was all sorts of things. But when I lived there, on the ground floor there was an Italian restaurant and they had a stream of these young guys on mopeds delivering food around the city. And it was one of the reasons I left because these young men were in... I mean, they were young men and they were incredibly noisy. They were just super noisy. If they weren't revving up their mopeds, they were arguing or fighting or whatever into the early hours of the morning. I was back there recently because a friend still lives there. Silence. No, and I'm said, still there, don't worry. And I said, what's... No, not, 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 uh, not you, him. Silence. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> and I said, why can't we... And he said, they've all got electric bicycles. They've all got, they've, they've all got rid of the mopeds and they've all got electric bicycles. And you think, well, obviously, for a moped, tax, insurance, MOT, helmet, licence, five things you've got to get. Electric bicycle, you've got to get nothing. And no. the electric bicycle, faster and cheaper than a moped. They're, they're very good, but some of the prices of them are extraordinary. Because um, I, I, I happened to go in the bike shop last year for an inner tube for an old bike, and, and I saw them there, and I think one was 2500 and he said, that's a cheap one. I said, how do you stop people making them? 
But he couldn't really answer that. And yeah. then the other day I saw this video of, 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 of an electric bike being stolen in a, in a town centre somewhere and they've just got these um, cordless disc grinders. Did you not just, think... Oh, I looked at that video footage of that young skelly yeah. wag stealing that bicycle and thought, wow, it's the young Jeremy Clarkson. He really had a Clarkson-esque look about him, that lad. If you, if you, if you, if you, his face, couldn't you, yes. Yeah. And, all, and I put something on social media saying, the young Jeremy Clarkson using a time machine <laughs> to come from the 70s to steal an electric bicycle to warn big oil about what's going to happen in the future. Because well, it, is, it is coming, isn't it? Ele- electric... Every single day. I mean, only yesterday on the news they said all new homes built in the UK have to have an electric charging point. Yeah. yeah. And, and the number of guys of our age who are in denial about it is just... All this stuff going, what about the infrastructure? I'm sick of hearing that. Well, there was no infrastructure for internal combustion. Do you, do you think they put in the infrastructure, loads of service stations, garages, filling stations, do you think they you put all that oil. in and then went, right, we're going to start selling cars. We've put all the infrastructure in. The infrastructure comes as soon as there's money to be As soon as there's money to be made, the infrastructure appears as if by magic because that's the way capitalism works. I mean, this is true. I mean, you've probably guessed I haven't got an electric car. Neither have I. Um, I'm not anti them. Um, I mean, yeah, it's going to happen. It is happening, and they're getting better all the while. Um, the, the, the only problem I have is that for a modern car, you have to pay a lot, it seems. Yeah, and but yeah, I think the thing is, Andy, the, the car market here in the UK is very odd, very, very. Unu- very unusual. Like I say, I've just... Been five weeks in Canada with the missus. And I spent... and Because people said to me, well, which part of Canada did you go to? I said, quite a bit of it, actually, because we started off in Vancouver on the west coast, then we flew to Halifax, Nova Scotia on the east coast, picked up her car, which I'd shipped over there, and we then drove that car, a 1971 Alpha Spider, since you ask. Nice. From Halifax through, through up to Quebec and... Montreal, and then ended up in Toronto. We actually, ironically, set off from Halifax and ended up in Scarborough. And it took three days! (laughs) Not the original ones, the Canadian ones. (laughs) And what I noticed was the motoring landscape in Canada seemed to reflect people's job, income, and house. The cars that you saw outside relatively modern homes were relatively modest cars. If you saw a big detached house, six bedrooms, swimming pool, big garage, there were Range Rovers. Where I live in Salford, it's relatively modest housing. Two, three bedroom houses, terraces, semi-detached, etc. There are Range Rovers, there are M BMWs, there's no end of Audis. There is the British car market, the new car market, is so artificial. British people have got used to driving round in cars that are way above their pay grade. They are punching. The British motorist is punching, as the young people say. They are, because it's so competitive, the car manufacturers are saying, look, you can't really afford this new BMW, but I tell you what, give us X amount down and 250 quid a month and we'll get you in it somehow. You'll never actually own it. You'll never actually own it or come anywhere near on it, but you'll get to drive round in it. 
This is the next crash. It's going to be all this loans on cars, and you know, you don't actually own it, like you say. Um, I'm amazed, actually, but uh, but I mean, uh, how many people actually need a Range Rover? Uh, really? Well, you know? yeah, but it's it, it's kind of who needs a Jag or a Ferrari or a you know, I, I I'm I would never criticise somebody. For, I I've had stupid daft cars that 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 I didn't need just because I wanted to own oh, one. Oh, I've got a garage full of them. <laughs> we should get around to talking about your your cars at some point. But, I, I mean, if you get to a, if you get into a, a market where transport is and people's, a person's ability to own a vehicle is dictated by government and it's done on need rather than want... You end up with a car that I've just bought. What's that? A Wartburg Knight. Oh, lovely. Oh, <laughs> what do you mean, all oh, lovely? <laughs> Everyone else I've told. I was with friends at the weekend, and, and we, we went out in, uh, for a, a, a drive round, not so far from you, actually. We, we started in Southport, and we crossed, went through the Mersey Tunnel and crossed onto the Wirral and had a bit of a tour around there. And we ended up in a restaurant, about 20 of us. And we're in a motley collection, well, not motley collection, we're in a collection of amazing cars. Almost all American, Corvettes, Impala SS, a Pontiac GTO, um, a Pontiac Tempest, an amazing collection of, of mid-60s muscle car. I was just instructed to get in. I, I was there. I was in my, I've got a Fiat Coupe 20-valve turbo. I was in that. I'm enjoying driving that, driving that at the minute. And I was just given the keys, which were tiny, tiny keys to this giant Chevrolet and my pal, said, my pal said, yeah, just follow us. And this thing was incredibly, not just long, but incredibly wide. And we're going down these little lanes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, uh, what if there's somebody coming the other way? Because <laughs> this thing's so wide. It, it, well, it must be about seven foot wide, is it? Something like that? Right, well, I don't know whether I should mention this. No, I'm not going to mention it. There, there wasn't any unpleasantness, but I did. we did get to a point where there were signs saying... You can't go through here if you're any wider than this. And we were all wider. The the, the Tempest was wider. The GTO was wider. The Impala was... The only thing that wasn't was the Corvette. The only, yeah. the only thing that was actually legal to go... But it was okay. You just had to be careful. You know, you just had to be aware that you had only a few inches on either side. Ridiculous, really. Quarter of an inch each side. <laughs> but I showed... I, I, I passed my phone around. I got a picture of this Wartburg Knight, which, of course, is acid green. Acid green. Can you imagine that in East Germany back in the 80s, this sort of grim, grey communism, and then you're driving around. And people were driving around. They always seem to paint the cars orange, purple. <laughs> it's, yeah, I bet it was about four years' wages or something to get something like that. Well, the Wartburg, as I think we should be pronouncing it, is was the kind of posh Trabant, wasn't it? Because the Trabant was the people's car. I, but, I did know somebody who bought a, a Wartburg new, and he... And he I went in it, actually. I, was, I thought it was very nice. He said, it's a three-cylinder two-stroke. It is, so, because yeah. Because it's a two-stroke, it's as smooth as a six-cylinder. Um, well, well me. I'm not sure about that, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? Right, I'll tell you one of the reasons I bought it. I bought it because I thought, do you know what? You'll never see another one coming in. You, if you ever go to a Cars and Coffee or you're just driving it for fun, you'll never see another one coming in the opposite direction, ever. There must be a tiny handful. I, know, I mean, people had said to me, well, there's a reason there's only a tiny handful of them in, in the UK. They're terrible. 
But I'm not sure that other people's criteria for what is a good car. I mean, I look at I look at modern motoring journalism, which I don't have that much to do with. I'm, I'm more interested in writing books these days about the past. What's happened in the past? Because it's more interesting. Just like more interesting. Well, motorbike racing was more interesting. Oh, motorbike racing is pretty good. At, well, with the passing of the, the era of Valentino Rossi's retirement, and and he must be considered to be one of the greats of all time. You do wonder if if uh, motorcycle racing will will endure. I'm sure it will, but um, the past just seems more interesting to me. Um, I look at modern journalism and I think, how do they criticise modern cars? This, what, what do you criticise? What are you actually criticising? Back in the day, there were terrible cars. I remember driving and reviewing for Top Gear. First mention of Top Gear, 50 minutes in. Well done, it's normally the first five minutes. I remember reviewing the first Kia Sportage. It was shocking. <laughs> there, were, there were various air arenas of its uh, performance in which it was wholly lacking. I mean, the steering was bad, the, the the ergonomics were terrible, the build... Well, we wouldn't say build quality because build quality only reveals itself with time and use, but the way it was put together was bad. There were all kinds of things. The way the spare wheel was mounted was some weird, like, swinging gate system where you had to... Every time you accessed the rear of the car, you had to swing back this thing, which was in... If you got it wrong or you were on a hill or whatever, just take your hand off. Wow, I just like a five-bar gate with a wheel on Well, exactly, with this enormous weight, this swinging metal thing, and I thought, how dangerous is that? Just, you know, not for sort of farmers or sort of industrial or agricultural application, but I thought, this is a, this is an SUV. It's kind of for what the Americans call soccer moms, you know, it's kind of take the you kids know, to school. It, it can... always puzzles me, and there must be a good reason for it, why so many of these four-by-fours, I haven't got any room inside for the spare wheel, and it's stuck on the back. Well, they haven't got any room inside for people. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Gi- these giant cars, and then you get in there and they think, there's no leg room in the back. But no. oh, oh, the, the other thing, <laughs> the other thing, riding in the back of them, um, we, we, went, we went on a trip down south, and a friend had just bought a brand-new SUV. This is like a year ago. Brand-new, top of the range, from an established manufacturer. Range Rover, Jaguar, J- JLR, whatever. Um, and we sat in the back. It was shocking. There were three of us in the back. We're all used to driving. We're all, we never go in the back of a car. Why would we go in the back of a car? We go in the back of a car to nip down to the pub or into town. We're the sort of people who drive or possibly sit next to the driver. Three of us in the so there's three of us like that in the back. We couldn't believe how bad it was. The seats were the seats were unco- the seats were not just uncomfortable. It was kind of where your feet sat in relation to where your bum was. Do you know what I mean, Andy? It was all wrong. It was like, oh, what's going on here? But then, twas ever thus, because a couple of weeks later, a pal of mine said, oh, there's this event, come along, I'm going down in my Bentley. 1924 Bentley. Lovely. Well, lovely, unless you're in the back. Because, of course, I said to him, you do realise that the people in the back are sitting about eight to ten inches higher up than the driver and the passenger? He said, yes, yeah, so what? I said, well, we've got no, no weather protection at all. None. Zero. The screen protects you and the front seat passenger, and the wash of whatever's coming over the windscreen hits the people who are sitting in the back straight in the face. And he said, well, that probably would have been because they were kids or servants. 
And I'm I like, if you buy one, you're never going to go in the back, though. No, exactly. And I, I said to him, because you've never been in the back, I said, you should go in the... It's no chance. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Bentley I've got, which is 1936, is a, a four-seat, officially, um, four-door, pillarless one. But the, the, if I've got the seats in the position for me to drive it, there's no legroom in the back at all. Yeah, but so what? That, that's where either, like I said, either children or your footman, your valet, would uh, he'd be there, wouldn't he? And he, exactly. he, he's got no uh, grounds to complain. Because but when you, you get ha- the Rolls-Royce or Bentleys where there is lots of room in the back, you would have to have someone no taller than five foot as your chauffeur because you can't get the leg room in, in the front. And I know this because I've tried sitting in them. <laughs> Wasn't it odd back then, Andy, the way that they used to sometimes make the chauffeur sit in the open, but you'd be enclosed in the back? I find it very odd. Because if I owned a car, I'd think, I don't mind the chauffeur getting wet, but I don't like the inside of my car getting wet. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, it, uh, it's an us and them thing, I imagine. I suppose it was so that you could talk about, you know, whether we should leave the gold standard or um, what what our spies in, in Belgrade were up to uh, or, you know, whatever dodgy part of the world we were sending our spies at the time. It was for, it, it was for secrecy so that the, uh, the below-stairs folk couldn't hear what you were up to. Yeah. Um, but mine's more of a sporting one than that, but uh, I, I, I did see some when I was buying this one, and I thought I tried sitting them in the front. It's just there's just no leg room because they really didn't care. There's like a living room in the back. What about your Land Rover? What's um, is it a Series Two? It's a two A. I actually sold it in the summer. Oh come on! <laughs> why because it. it. Why? Because it was it was appalling to drive. They are they are at any sort of speed. They're oh, tractors, really, aren't they? That's what they are. I had a Series One many years ago, Ooh. which which uh, because I was a lot younger then. I mean, I'm sixty five now, but it was that seemed to me easier to drive. But I was getting like cramp in my left leg every time I changed gear, and no matter what I did, I couldn't really cure it. There was nothing wrong with the car. The Land Rover, it was just, I'd aged, and my left ah. leg. So, so I sold it, and um, then bought something else. But there you go. I'll tell you the thing about um, old Land Rovers that, um, that's a bit of a problem. How good a Willis Jeep is. Oh, what, what, the original, the wartime one? Yeah, they're just phenomenal. They're, they're, they're amazing vehicles. And then you get in a really old Land Rover, and you think, yes, it's classy, Yes, they're se- they are sexy. Old, original Land Rovers wearing the pattern of the decades that they've been around and all the places they've been and all the fields and points to points and wherever yeah. they've been, they are sexy cars. The, but, the one that we had, the, the older one, not, it, it was uh, it, 19, about 1989 I sold it. We got married in 88. We used my white Range Rover as the wedding car. That was a K Reg. That was a very early one. That's early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steering, worth a fortune now. Mm. And then we used the 1956 86 inch Land Rover to go from Oxfordshire to North Wales on honeymoon. Oh, blind. That was. <laughs> yeah. Did it? You know. <laughs> I mean, that was the vehicle. I changed everything on it engine, axles. The only thing I hadn't changed was the gearbox, and, and the first time I showed it my other half, that's when I lived in Coventry, this was, I got it ticking over and often the clutch stuck, so I freed the clutch off. 
Next thing I know, it's ticking over. Bang, gearbox blew up just as it was ticking over. <laughs> Old cars are a nightmare, aren't they? They really are. As soon as you fix one thing, I said to somebody, I said to somebody the other day, I said, old cars are like the fourth rail bridge. Oh, um, definitely. Once you've fixed everything, it's time to start fixing everything again. And I don't care what it is. Don't care what it is. If you use it, and I know that you, you this is what this is how you've ended up on this show because I see you on social media using your cars all the time. There's none of this. Oh, I'm looking forward to two months' time when I'm going to take my classic on a 50-mile round trip. You're out there all the time, all weathers, all conditions, using your cars. Well, well, that's right, and we do. Um, you know, of course, it's with assault, but, you know, the Bentley, um, just that one example, that spent World War Two in France, oh. in, in Normandy, and it survived all of that. So Was it commandeered by the Germans? It must have been. It was uh, owned by the Calvados Company. Um, the oh, first, wow. And it must have been extremely well hidden because, you know, it would have been commandeered. Um, the town it was in was heavily bombed by the Allies before the D-Day landings. Um, somehow it survived all of that and came back to the UK in 1959. I was, I was at Retromobile in Paris, you know, the big classic show there. And there's a very handsome motorcycle, a Norm and Roan motorcycle, French built. Yeah. And the bloke told me, he saw me, you know, like staring at it, and he wandered over and he told me the story. And it was an amazing story where this bloke had bought it brand new just before the war from the, he said, he, the bloke used to go past on his relatively modest motor bicarn or whatever it was every morning and see this handsome Norm and Roan motorcycle in the window. And he'd gone in there and he put the money down and he and he managed to scrape it off and part exchanged his motor bicarn for it and all that sort of stuff. And then war broke out and the Germans arrived and they commandeered his motorcycle. And he'd yeah. see his bike. He'd see his bike. I, d- I don't know. The bloke told me the story. It was a lovely story. He'd see his motorcycle going around the town. But he was part of the French resistance. You know, he was only a young, young, young lad at the time. Part of the resistance. And at the very end of the war, when the Germans were getting ready to scarper, his friend, or his, his, I think an older friend or his uncle or someone like that said, you'd better go and get your bike, and gave him, gave him a gun. Said, you better go and get your bike, because your bike's going to go. That's it, you'll never see it again. Yeah. And, it, and he saw the guy on the street, and he walked down the street, and as the bloke was riding towards him, he shot him stone dead, knocked him off the bike, and got his bike back. And yeah. I thought... Well, that's a good story. <laughs> it's probably not true, but I'm going to choose to believe it because it's a great story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think I thought you were going to say he just pointed it at him and hoped he'd stop, but uh... no, he said he shot him. I was oh. when I was thinking about that story. I was thinking, well, would you not wait till he stopped? Maybe he waited till he stopped and then he did it. But you know, got to wait till he stopped. So the bike didn't get wrecked. But there you go. Do you know what? Uh, it, it wasn't the war that was the problem for cars like that. It was the immediate post-war period, wasn't it? Because we had a I interviewed I interviewed this guy called Lee P. Lee, who'd been a banger racer, a stock car racer in the just after the war at places like White City and London, and and he wrote a book, and the pictures in the book were amazing. There were tens of thousands of people watching stock car racing watching them smash these cars up. And some of the fields that they would they would have would include Lagondas, Bentleys, all kinds of Rolls-Royce, all kinds of huge cars, because 
in that post-war period, I mean, Pet- how long did petrol stay on the ration for? It was it was at least six or seven years, wasn't it, after the war? Yes, then it happened again at Suez, 1956. Yeah, so what... what and, and, and the, the tragic... Uh, story that was repeated many times he said to me um, when he was doing it was that he they, well, because when they were doing this uh, stock car racing banger racing what smashing up these big old cars for the entertainment gladiatorial entertainment of the public who lapped it up by the way so let's not blame them too much he said they had an advert he said we had an advert in one of the london papers and it said wanted big old cars we'll pay 10 pounds and he said, we never paid £10. We never paid more than £10. He said, and we get, a, we get a phone call, and it'd be some posh address in West London, Kensington or somewhere like that, and we'd go around there, and it'd be some poor woman whose husband had never come home, and they had this massive car, a Lagonda, a Bentley, something like that. What's she supposed to do with it? Nobody wanted to buy them. So if he gave her £10 and they took it away, well, it was out of the way. Exactly. I mean, well, that's what happened, isn't it? Um, yeah. If you look in old... Car magazines from the 50s, 60s, you see these, these lovely Bentleys and that, and you think, a couple of hundred quid. I think, really? But that was still a lot of money at the time. Well, the best ones are in the 70s, where if you've got old copies of Motor and Car, like I've got, uh, for sale, uh, E-Type Jaguar, uh, goodish condition, £500 or very near offer. You know, all, all that sort of stuff. In the era of, which, you know, was our era in a way, in the era of alloy wheels, glass fibre bodies and flip-up headlights, handmade bodywork, wire wheels, wire wheels. What, like an old man's car, someone smoking a pipe? No one wanted it. A DB5 in 1975 was like a fart in a spacesuit, wasn't it? People, oh, yeah. people wanted a wedge-shaped thing, usually done by Giaro or something like that, with, like, a digital dash, pop-up headlights. The Aston Martin Lagonda, look at that. That's what people thought was cool. Well, they did, yeah. They, they didn't think an old silver Aston Martin. Do you know what? I was looking at DB5 in real life a couple of weeks ago, and I'm always surprised by how pronounced the, the wings at the back are. There's a real, you know, I always think, oh, that's quite American, that. <laughs> so, you know, they always, they always seem bigger than I think, because I think, because I'm used to, you know, like a lot of people, I've got a, it's like I'm a saddle and I've got a cabinet in the living room that's full of old model cars and there's DB5 in there and I, well, I'm used point. to I'm used to seeing it that size. So when I see one in real life, I think, oh, it's a bit American looking at this back end. I, I, I still love the DB5. It's beautiful. Well, there was a guy in our street who had one, and I'm, and I mean, this is Jelano talks about this all the time. The preeminent um, car and motorcycle enthusiast of our time. What a great guy! What an amazing guy, Jelano. As you, as you probably tell, I'm a huge fan. Because yeah. I think he really gets it. I think, yes, he's as rich as God. He was the highest paid person on American television for a long time. And he could just sit on a yacht. But to me, it just looks like he spends all his time at that garage with his people who work for him, a.k.a. his mates, who he gets to hang around and pays them a very good salary, I would imagine. And they just work on cars and motorcycles all the time. And that's what he loves and that's what he does. But I think he's a very good explainer of why we like these things and why we have these things. Exactly. Yeah. And he was he was talking about that. Um, yeah. I mean, I've ended up with so many cars, not quite sure why it's happened, but, uh, I mean, there's, there's about six here at the moment. Oh, that's, that's, that's not too terrible. So what have you got at the moment? There's, the oldest is a 1932 Riley Gamecock. Oh, what a car. Fantastic. The open two-seater Riley 9. 
incredibly advanced engine for its time. Um, then there's a 1933 Austin 7 saloon. <laughs> that was the first pre-war car we got, and that's yeah. the one where it was delivered, and I, I drove it down the road. There's a slight hill opposite us, and I pressed the brake pedal, and not a lot happens. <laughs> but that's how they are. Yeah, and, I got. Uh, I got a go very quick. Yeah, I got. Yeah. A, I got a 1980 Honda CX500 uh, a few months back, and it's got three disc brakes: two at the front, one at the back. So you one, think? So you one think? One at the back. Yeah, one at the back. Yeah, there's motorbikes like that. One at the back, two at the front, right? Oh, I see. I'm, yeah, I'm motorbike, sure. right? Yeah. So, I'm. I'm thinking, this bike is 40 years old. It's a 1981 Honda, right? Very advanced machine for its time. Quite. Re- Unfairly maligned for for its sort of it's a bit quirky looking, but I thought okay, I'm used to riding old bikes. I like riding old bikes, but look at this thing. It's got alloy wheels. It's not got wire wheels. It's got alloy wheels. It's got three disc brakes. It's gonna stop. Not like a modern machine, but not too bad. Rode it down the road. Got to the first set of traffic lights. Nearly went sailing straight through them. Even with three disc brakes, Incredible, the stopping the stopping distance was way more than on way more. I was like, oh, wow, okay, I need to recalibrate this. I need, I need to think. <laughs> and then after that, as soon as I did that and started thinking ahead a bit more, and, and there's something about old cars, old bikes, old trains. If you've ever driven one of them, I've driven a couple. I have, actually. Oh, have you? Yeah. What, what was that? I like steam railways and that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's the same thing in many ways, isn't it? You, you're much more involved in the process. You can't, you don't need as we were talking about a giant iPad in the middle of the in the middle of the dashboard because you're too busy with all, <laughs> with all the business of driving or riding or, or operating or whatever you're always doing something when you're in driving the old cars um, you're looking sort of like a mile well a good distance ahead of you what is this person going to do is this car going to pull out mm. you know and you're really involved in it and then, of course, in the Riley, there's no synchromesh on any of the gears. You have to double clutch every wow. every gear change, so you have to concentrate on that. Um, so there's always something to think about with them. Well, that... mostly it's sort of self-defence. You're thinking, what they're going to do? What they're yeah. going to do? No. Yeah. Um, the, the brakes on the Riley are a lot better than the Austin Seven. Um, yeah, but the brakes... Riley goes a lot faster. I should have... Well, a lot faster than an Austin 7 or Riley. A Riley Gamecock was a sporting gentleman's gadabout, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yes. Uh, quite a lot more money as well than the oh, Austin yeah. yeah. would have been. Um, Austin 7s are brilliant, though, you know. Are they? Oh, they're really good. Have you ever driven one? Yeah. I've dri- Well, uh, yeah, yeah, and I've driven a Dixie, which is the... The German BMW one. Well, that, we nicked the design. Well, not nicked it. It was. It was. Wasn't it part of wartime reparation, or we we licensed it, or something like that? Before the war, BMW wanted um, to build a small car, and uh, well, they obviously negotiated with uh, um, Lord Austin. So it's the other way around, and I believe they also made it in Japan. They did, right? Yes. Wow. Um, I think I think they did a f- like a like a how do you call it a fake. Um, with, un, without being under licence or anything, and then, right. and I think there was negotiations done. I'm not entirely sure yeah. about this. Well, the Japanese made a Harley Davidson without, I, I, and I think initially it was sort of, oh, we'll licence this, uh, we'll license, and then they just went, oh, we'll just make it. 
And it was just a copy of the Harley. And, and I've also, ri- I've got to say, I've ridden a Russian Vespa. And really? It, uh, what was yeah, that like? Very odd. Because it was made out of much thicker steel than a real Vespa. So it ah. was incredibly heavy. Yeah. And it was, I remember, I remember putting it, taking it off the stand and thinking, because I'd, I've been the editor of Scooter in magazine at one point. I probably owned everything that Piaggio ever made with a Vespa badge on it up till then. And I got on this Russian thing and I pushed it off the stand and I thought, oh my God, what's going on here? <laughs> it's like, like it's made out of granite. They just, obviously, to withstand the climate of the uh, USSR, they've made it out of much thicker steel. And, right. uh, and it was slightly bigger than a Vespa, slightly bigger. And I thought, what's what's the deal here? And they said, oh, they took a mould. They took a mould, but then, well, for whatever reason, they decided to take a mould off the mould because it was too little. Because oh. Rus- Russians are bigger than Italians. <laughs> I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, when all the larders were here, um, we, we had a dealer when I was in Coventry, Smith and Sons, they were called, have long gone now. And we see larders all over the place. Well, I, somebody told me the other day, they said, you know the guy that brought them in got rich? And I said, but it was the cheapest car. It was the cheapest car on sale in Britain. And he went, yeah, but there was way more profit in each sale than there was if you were a Ford dealer or a Vauxhall dealer or yeah. whatever. So if you were selling this, this is what this guy said to me. I don't know. I don't ever believe it. But he said the guy was doubling his money. He was selling them for five grand, but he was paying significantly less than that to get them off the the Russians. And so although he was selling the cheapest car on sale in the UK... He used to make a big thing about having an incredibly comprehensive toolkit, including a tin of touch-up paint. I remember that. (laughs) I've had a couple of them, you know. I went to... um, I had the Neva... The four-wheel drive. And did you see that? This is probably a good place to stop. We must have you back on again because it's just been me gabbing away as usual. But did you see the Nevers on sale in the UK? Brand new. The Ladder Neva, the four-wheel drive. It's it, it, You can buy one now I, in the I UK. I never went to one, but I'm told they were really good. Well, we went to Africa in one. We found one on the streets of Berry that had been abandoned, entered this banger rally. So, we, you know, it was one of those banger rallies where they said, you can't have paid more than £500. We said, oh, we've, yeah. we've yeah. found our car. It was, it was, I saw it, I was driving down towards Rochdale to get on the motorway, and I saw it, it was on some railings, and the front wheels were off the ground, it had been crashed into the park railings. Wow. So somebody would stolen it, I, I would, there was a police aware sticker on it, and I went round to the police station, because I'd done some road safety stuff with them, and they sort of knew who I was. Micro, local micro-celebrity. And I went round there, and they said, oh, yeah, um, we've told the bloke who it is. He says he doesn't want it back, and he's he's, he's having it scrapped. So I said, whoa, whoa. I said, whoa, 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 I'll take it. I said, do I need to... And they said, no, no, they weren't going to pay him because they were going to char- charge him to come out and get it. So he just said, oh, just take it, just have it. Yeah. So I said, that. right, OK. So we just took it, and we drove it from Berry Lancashire to the Gambia in Africa through quite a bit of sort of desert territory and places where there aren't any roads, and it, it went like an absolute champ. What oh, a ca- fantastic. What a car. We dragged so many other... Other people had set off in, like, you know, a Honda Civic or <laughs> whatever, and then they got to the Western Sahara and were like, oh, got a problem. 
And then we'd appear in Len, our fantastic Russian four-wheel drive, with oh, these lovely. with these big old BF Goodrich Desert Jewelers that I managed to blag off BF Goodrich. And we'd just get the old tow strap out. We towed so many people out of trouble on that trip. Oh, yeah, great. And when my pal, Paul, who'd been with me, um, when he went back on holiday, he decided he liked the Gambia so much, he went back there the next year on holiday. He saw our larder. We'd all donated the cars to charity, as you do and should do when you go on these banger rallies. If you go to these countries where they've got nothing, you should give them something. And so we all did. And we get, apart from one guy who got in terrible trouble, terrible trouble, thought he could act in Africa like he could act in Essex and found out that in Africa, if you take liberties... I mean, I believe bad things happen in Essex, but even worse things happen in Africa. But the rest of us just gave our cars away. Yeah. And when Paul went back a year later, he was walking down the street, and he saw it, and it was <laughs> it'd been repainted. Oh, wonderful. Well, he said, it said, because in the Gambia, of course, they speak English, unlike everyone else in that part of Africa. Um, it's a former former territory of this uh, of this nation when we when big parts of the world were pink, not that yeah. long ago. And Paul went back and saw the, Len, our larder, in the street, been repainted white, and on the side it said GNOC. And he thought, what's that? And he went round the back, and on the tailgate it said Gambian National Olympic Committee. And in the, he took a picture, and in the back there were loads of uh, discuses and javelins and stuff like that. It was being used, it was being used, you know, as a sort of truck for the, uh, well, for obviously the Gambian. I don't know if Gambia have ever won an Olympic medal. But maybe no, I have thought so. maybe well, they do one day. We had helped in some small way. That was good, isn't it? I mean, we, we have in the past also owned a couple of the old Skodas, the rear engine ones. Which ones? Did you have a Rapide or a, or just the Estelle? It was the Estelle. One was a 130 and one was a 120. And what I did find out was that if you overtake anybody in it, they absolutely hate it. Yeah. <laughs> it was the height of all the jokes. It never stopped. You just have to go along with it. You know? I had one. We called it Stella the Fella. It was that. It was that kind of bluey green that couldn't decide whether it was blue or green. Do you know? What, do you know what I mean, yeah. Andy? It was that. Yeah, I know what you mean. Which looked like primer. It, it looked like they'd sort of got to the primer stage, like a lot of modern cars that look like they're just in primer, and then they couldn't be bothered putting the putting the rest on. And I. Oh. Was, I liked them. I liked it. I was on my way from where I bought it in Birmingham to Norwich to attend this rally. I'd just bought it. I'd gone down there. I'd put it on my insurance, and I'd set off in hope more than anything else. It had an MOT. It was all legal and everything. I'd put it on insurance, set off down the M40, and got near Gaydon, which, of course, you know, British Motor Heritage Centre. Oh, yeah. And masses of steam and smoke and terribleness coming out the back of it. So I pulled into Gaydon and lifted up the um, lifted up the boot lid at the back, which is, of course, where the engine was, and uh, all the steam and smoke started to dissipate, and I got my... I'd got some food with me. I'd got a sandwich and a flask and all that, so I put it on the roof, and I thought, I've got 20 minutes before it, I can touch anything because everything was so damn hot. Everything was, like, insanely hot. It had massively overheated. And, of course, Gaydon, British Motor Heritage, all sorts of stuff goes on there to do with cars. And yeah. so while I'm stood there eating my sandwich and drinking tea out of my flask, these two blokes came over, and one of them went, Hello, you are having Skoda picnic? And I went, What? And he went, This is in... We are Czech, these two blokes. Sorry about the accent, Czech people. We are Czech, this is Skoda picnic in, 
in check many times the skoda is making too much too much heat and so you must stop and so when you go you must take with you the skoda picnic <laughs> like this and i was like really because i i'd phoned the missus and said this thing has expired it's not going anywhere except on the back of a aa truck and these guys were going no no uh 15 minutes everything will be okay oh yeah thank you goodbye like this and off they went <laughs> And true to form, 15 minutes later, when everything had cooled down, I just I got some water out around the back at Gade and put it in. Off we went. No black currant, then? No black currant this time, Andy. Just water. Hey, Andy, how do you fancy coming on my show so, to talk about your cars instead of just listening to me talk for an hour or so? We're welcome anytime. <laughs> Sorry I've gabbed so much, but it's been an absolute delight to talk to you about and uh, we can cover more ground. I'm a bit disappointed you've got rid of your uh, your uh, Land Rover, but uh, we can talk about your other cars. Yeah, feel free, yeah. Great yeah. to have you on the show, Andy. Thanks a lot. That's it for another episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Social media doesn't let us tell you about it. You need to spread the word about Speed Shop. Tell people how good it is, how entertaining it is, how fantastic I am. See you back here next Wednesday. <laughs>